Good morning. My name is Ardalis Green. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. <clears throat> we're in a series entitled Connected to the Book of Romans. And today we're going to spend most of our time in the Book of Romans, chapter 14. We'll start with Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew, chapter 11. And my first point is that a person with a sensitive conscience will often have their share of doubts and questions and struggles. We, um, we're a people that have faith, but we carry around doubts. If we're single, sometimes we wonder if we'll ever be married. If we're in debt, we wonder if we'll ever get out of debt. If we're trying to get into a diet, we wonder if we have the strength to stick to our diet. We question, we doubt what people tell us is true. We wonder whether the politicians are telling us what's true. We question things like CDC, Big Pharma. We have our people of doubts. We wonder if the Washington football team will ever win again. We have our doubts. But I have no doubt <clears throat> about something. That is that those Christmas boxes you saw, they do a lot of good. Last year, I think about 7.4 million went out. This year, about 11 million are projected to go out, and they'll go to places where they've never heard about Jesus. They'll open up their box, and they'll hear the gospel. They'll see the love of God's people. And then there's a 12-week program to enroll them in discipleship, which we're all about here, discipleship. So do, um, do help us out. Do help out the work of evangelism by uh, picking up a few boxes. See, if we're honest, if we're honest, we'll admit we have moments of doubt. I want to begin with a story of a man who you might not expect had his doubts, but Jesus, this is what Jesus did to get him back on track. I mean, how many of you here struggle with doubt? Just raise your hand. Wow, good. How many of you here never, ever, ever have a doubt? Okay, good. All right. Doubt is not necessarily a sign a man or woman's wrong. It's a sign a person's thinking. Sometimes parents freak out when their kids begin to push back, when their daughter or son questions if the Bible is the Word of God, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, if God created the universe. Parents, when their kids question, say, what have I done wrong? Well, you haven't done anything wrong. It's just your kids are beginning to think and question. Grace, the church you're in now, is a place where you can work out your faith. There are times in life when <clears throat> the journey where we're in this journey, when things don't seem so clear, they don't seem to make sense. Maybe something happened, you have to scratch your head and ask, where was God in all of this? You were praying and it seemed that God was silent. And all he had to do is speak a word and your problem would be solved. <clears throat> God could do something to fix this problem, but it seemed as if God was sitting on his hands, dragging his feet. God wasn't paying attention. The problem with doubt is that we don't see God who is hidden from us. We see the problem, which is right in our face. See, faith is believing, trusting in the unseen God, that God is all-powerful, that God is able to help you, that God deeply cares about you. But it doesn't seem as if God cares based on the circumstances I find myself in. It's been said that when the warm, moist air of expectations collides with the cold, icy air of God's silence, it produces clouds of doubt. When you doubt, you feel like you're a spiritual failure. You feel at times like you've gone apostate. 
But if you have moments of doubt, you are not alone. The greatest people that we know in the Scriptures pretty much doubted. Moses doubted that God could use him to face off with Pharaoh. Gideon doubted because the family came from that God could use him to deliver his people. Elijah, after he had fought the prophets of Baal, said, Lord, take my life. Even Paul had his moments of doubt. But the person you're going to find very surprising had doubts is John the Baptist. Now, in fairness to John, what he experienced may be more about perplexity or confusion. He didn't quite get what was happening. So Jesus helped him to get perspective, to get refocused. John was a man of great faith. It had been 400 years since God had spoken through a prophet from the time of Malachi to John. There had been no word from God. And out of nowhere emerged this colorful character, John. Now, he didn't wear the fancy robes like the Pharisees. No, John wore camel hair and ate locusts and wild honey. He was an outdoorsman. Today, he'd wear camo and eat off the land. He probably has some tattoos on him as well. He offered hope to people because he was calling them back to God. You see, he called out the Pharisees. He said, who warns you from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance, you brood of vipers. The Pharisees hated him because he spoke the truth, but the people loved him. The historian Josephus wrote about more about John than he did about Jesus. John was a famous, powerful preacher. And his job was to prepare people for the Messiah. He had three jobs. One was to clear the way. The second was to prepare the way. And the third was to get out of the way. So he was at the Jordan, Jordan River baptizing people I mean, down in the desert. And um, Jesus came, comes to be baptized by John and says, to fill all righteousness, John, baptize me. And John says, you know, I have need to be baptized by you, not me to baptize you. And when he obeyed God, he heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And he saw the Spirit of God come upon Jesus. Well, this outdoorsman who was full of vim and vigor was put into a dungeon. Now, dungeons then were like a hole in the ground. Rats would run across your feet. The portions would be very meager. They would serve you. The water would be polluted. No sanitation facilities. You can't imagine a worse stench than being in the prison. This outdoorsman was put in prison. How did John end up in prison? Well, he was a man of faith. He was a righteous man. And he would get angry at unrighteousness. And he spoke out with boldness about sin. He just couldn't keep his opinions to himself. So John had heard that Herod had taken his brother's wife. He called out a powerful man. Herodias was married to Philip. And Herod had gone to Rome, and he had taken up with Herodias. So he ditched his wife in order to marry this other woman, Herodias. He broke his wedding vows, left his wife, and stole his brother's wife. And what John said, it's not right for you to take your brother's wife. 
It's not right for somebody to wrongfully take something that isn't theirs. That's stealing. It's not right for someone to intentionally tell you something's false. That's lying. It's not right to deliberately take someone's life. That's murder. And it's not right to commit adultery, John said. And so Herod had John thrown in prison. And John is in prison waiting for some good news because he knew that when Messiah comes, the Spirit of God would be upon him and he would release from the prison the prisoners and set them free. But yet, for 12 long months, John sat in prison waiting for some good news. But he had a misunderstanding of the role of Messiah. John, like most people, believed that Messiah, when he arrived, would overthrow the Romans, the tyranny of Rome. But he... <laughs> He was waiting to hear that Rome was defeated, that Christ had established his kingdom. But 18 months had gone by. No revolt against Rome had happened. Word on the street was that Jesus was eating with sinners. John was in a hellhole, and Jesus was having a good time. And he begins to doubt. Did I get this wrong? Am I missing something? Is this not the Messiah? Look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the town of Galilee. And John heard in prison what Christ was doing. And he sent his disciples. So Jesus spent three years making disciples. Our church is all about making disciples who make disciples. We believe that everybody should be in a discipleship relationship. So Jesus invested himself in three years making disciples. And John had his disciples as well, people that were close to him. And so in the prison, John communicated to his disciples, you know, go find out for me this question. I'm beginning to doubt, you see. He said, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? You see, before Christ would establish his kingdom on earth, he'd suffer for the sins of the world. Before he'd wear the crown of many thorns, he would wear the crown of thorns. You see, we don't understand when tragedy strikes a godly man or woman. A child dies. We don't understand. A person has cancer. Why did God do this to them? We interpret God in light of the tragedy instead of interpret the tragedy in light of God. See, God is always on the throne, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Merciful One. He can work all things together for good. But John's wondering, why haven't you saved me? You see, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. It shows that you are processing, you're working it out. So if things don't make sense to you, if you're discouraged now and begin to doubt, you are not alone. You see, John finds himself in the dungeon of doubt. John fell into despair and depression. You see, he could call out kings, but he could also get down in the dumps, just like you and I. <laughs> doubt is different than unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind we don't understand. Unbelief is to refuse to believe what God has said. So John was a man of faith. And what did he do with his doubts? There's the question. 
you're a person now and you have your share of doubts. The question is, what do we do with our doubts? Well, he took them to Christ. He sent his people to Christ. And this is what Jesus said. Verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. See, there's going to be evidence for faith that God is still active in this time. God is still reaching people in a time of COVID. God is still making disciples. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Oh. Jesus walked to the gate of the temple, and there was a man blind from birth. And his disciples judged the man. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, if you sit in judgment on people, you're of no help to them. And Jesus said this happened that the work of God may be evident in his life. We must work while it's still day, for the night is coming, and I am the light of the world. And then Jesus spat on the ground. He made mud. He applied it to the man's eyes, and he said, go down to the pool of Siloam. And he came back seeing. A man who was blind received his sight. What else? The lame walk. There was a man who was paralyzed, and his friends brought him to Jesus. You know, you're going to carry your friends somewhere. A good place to bring them is to Jesus. And they opened up the roof, and they brought him down, and Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. The lame man, the paralyzed man, picked up his mat, and he walked home. And those who've had leprosy are cured. Leprosy was considered an incurable disease. Gradually, incrementally, you know, body parts would fall off. And they were considered unclean. And one leper said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed of your leprosy. And the person who had leprosy was made well. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. You see, John was in great danger now in his season of doubt for falling away from Jesus himself because he was caught up in his own circumstances. Because all he could see was the prison. He couldn't see Jesus in that place. And maybe that's where you are. You're kind of seeing your circumstance, but you're not seeing Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't treat John with harshness. He turns him back to Scripture. He lets John know that even if you don't understand my ways, my will, I want you to trust me. Someday you'll understand. You know, when you don't understand, you have to trust the one who understands. When somebody doubts, if you're in a season of doubting, take your doubts to the Scripture. Jesus understands that in that solitude, that suffering, that loneliness, he says, go back and tell John some things. Tell him he's the best of the, best of the prophets. Go back and tell John that I love him. Go back and tell him that you're not wrong, that I'm right on schedule. Tell him everything's going to be okay. Now look at this last part of Matthew 11, verses 16 and following. Then Matthew, the writer, who himself was a 
tax collector who became a believer, who had a feast at his house, who's writing this word. He says, to what can I compare this generation? Hey, if you were to, to, to look at your own generation, like where we are right now, what would you compare us to? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. You see, in their day, there was the agora, the marketplace. And people would bring their wares to the marketplace and sell them. They would bring their fruits and vegetables, their meats to the marketplace and sell in the marketplace. And so the children would also be in the marketplace playing games. And the two most common games, believe it or not, the children played was the wedding game and the funeral game. The, <laughs> in the wedding game, what would happen is one would be the bride. And she would have her bridesmaids. And someone would play the groom because that was a big event in the city, the procession of the wedding, you know, coming to someone's house and being married. The second thing they played was the funeral game. And so someone would be the dead one, and they'd carry him around. You know, several people carried the dead one around. It was a children's game. And this is what it says. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance, as if it were the wedding game. In other words, you're playing games with God. We played for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge like a funeral. You did not mourn. Now, follow this. And John came neither eating nor drinking. John was a Nazarite. He didn't cut his hair. He didn't drink wine. He didn't eat the normal foods, you see. He didn't come eating and drinking. He came fasting because he was preparing the people for Messiah. But the Son of Man, verse 19, you see it, came eating and drinking. <laughs> when Jesus went to a wedding feast, he ate everything in sight the beautiful vegetables sautéed, the fruits chopped up, the breads, the meats, the wine. Jesus came eating and drinking like a wedding feast. He was the bridegroom. And they say about him that he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. So I just want you to get the point that one of these, John the Baptist, chose not to eat. That Jesus... The Messiah chose to eat because he wanted to, because he's free to. All right, so now let's go now to Romans chapter 14 and pick up what Paul is trying to say. In Romans 14, verse 14, it says, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. Jesus would say that it's not that which comes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man, out of his heart. And then, of course, Peter had the vision where the things were formerly unclean, now were declared clean. So Paul is saying that I have freedom to eat whatever. But if anyone regards someone as something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat... You're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Paul states his position very clearly. I am fully convinced that I am free. That no food that goes into my body makes me unclean. 
The Pharisees believed that washing hands was throughout the meal was totally necessary. Washing hands is good hygiene, greatly encouraged before a meal or after shaking hands. But Jesus would give us freedom to eat the ribeye offered to an idol. Paul was a free man. See, the Gentiles <laughs> did not have restrictions on their food. The Gentiles knew about things like pork barbecue. They knew about bacon. They knew about crab cakes. You see, the Gentiles had freedom in what they eat, but those coming out of Jewish traditions did not feel the freedom to eat pork or things that didn't, a fish that didn't have scales on it. So, there were other Christians who did not agree with the principle of freedom. They are bound by their conscience, their traditions, their experience. They did not have the freedom to eat the ribeye. For them, it would be violating their conscience, breaking their standard, defiling their body. For them, it is unclean. So I want to say to you that we are not always, always going to agree on every subject. Would you agree with that? That we're not going to agree. If I were a demon, and I'm not, a force of darkness in the world during the COVID, this is what I would do. I would bring division to families and friends and churches. I would get people talking about politics, and there is division. Some believe that Trump won the election. Some believe that Biden won by 7 million. Some believe the election was unfair. Some believe it was the fairest election in the history of America. All you have to do to get division in our country right now is bring up politics. And then you know what you can do to add to that division? You can talk about racial issues. We can talk about black lives matters or all lives matter. We can talk about whether you're woke or whether you're unwoke. And then we can dive into critical race theory we can talk about intersectionality. On top of that, we can put a little vaccine controversy, people blasting one another on social media, and before long, you destroy friendships. Family members aren't talking to one another. Churches are divided about vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. And the enemy has served to divide us. The church which is united is unstoppable. But the church which is divided is weak and ineffective. And what Paul is saying is, we're not going to agree on all these issues. You have to make up your own mind according to conscience about what you believe is the right thing for you. You think you should be vaccinated. Go get your vaccine. You think you should not be vaccinated according to conscience. Don't do it. Some people think, <laughs> because we listen to all the right doctors, all the right politicians, they come across as Mr. Know-it-all. They don't realize how off-putting their attitude is. Don't you understand that not everybody's going to agree with you? Listen to me. A person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, he's saying, laying down his life. Can't you make a little sacrifice and make a concession for your brother for the sake of unity? Number three, 
live as citizens of the kingdom of God. You see, we're prone to think the kingdom of God is primarily external. It's what a person eats or does not eat, whether they choose to dance or drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do, whether they cut their hair, whether they wear the right clothes. That's what the Pharisees did. They made a big deal of the externals. The kingdom of God, according to the Scripture, verse 17, is not about eating and drinking, whether you eat or whether you drink. It's about righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You see, God declares us righteous by faith. That produces a longing in us for holiness, a desire to know God's will, an intense thirst in the inner parts. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So flowing out of righteousness is peace with one another. How do we get to peace? You are free to follow your conscience. You don't have to agree with me. You get to make up your own mind. And then out of the righteousness and peace, out of the righteousness and peace comes the joy. We just sang about joy. When's the last time when you really felt joy? We are living in a time when we are so easily offended. I mean, you turn on the news and you get offended. You read something online, you get offended. I'm going to tell you something now. It is inevitable living in this world for you to be offended. You do not have a choice as to whether you get offended or not. But to stay offended is your choice. You can live your life pleasing to God, approved of men, it says, if you give people their freedom. Giving people their freedom. Number four, pursue that which brings mutual benefit. Verse 19 says, let us then make every effort, every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. God has made peace with us through the cross. We have been reconciled back to him. We are not at war with God. We don't have to be at war with each other. As far as it depends upon me, upon us, as much as possible, let us live at peace with one another. It means I don't have to violate my conscience. I can be true to what I really believe, but I don't force someone else to believe what I believe. I give them the freedom to make up their own mind. So let me try to be extremely practical to you now. You have the freedom in Christ to get a tattoo if you want to, to drink a beer if you want to or not, to have a glass of wine, to smoke a cigar or not, to play cards, to go to a movie, to watch Harry Potter, to go trick-or-treating, to listen to country music. You have freedom to do all those things, right? But let's say you're out to have a Mexican dinner, and you're with your friend who is a brand-new Christian. And your friend comes from an alcoholic family and has struggled with alcohol. And you learn that alcohol has been a big part of her life. It's been her comfort in the hard times. Now, what you normally do there is you order a margarita. You have the freedom to get yourself one. But you realize your friend is just learning to say no to alcohol. 
She has had this relationship with alcohol, but alcohol right now is not her friend. You are her friend, and Jesus is her friend. Now, you could flaunt your freedom and to prove you have freedom, right, and say, I'm going to have a margarita no matter what. Or you could choose to not drink the margarita out of love for your friend. The loving thing to do is to restrict your freedom for the sake of your sister, for your brother, to love them enough to restrict yourself in the exercise of your freedom. Why? Because to drink in front of her may make her stumble. And she may want another one and another one and another one. What I'm trying to say is do whatever makes for peace and for mutual edification. Let me show you one last verse, or one more verse. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 19. This is what Paul wrote. Though I am free and belong to no man, I'm a free man. I'm a slave to none. No man is my master. But to win as many as possible, I am free, belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone. What this calls for is self-sacrifice, self-denial, flexibility, and adaptability. Though I am free, I'm not a slave to anyone. I make myself a slave to everyone. To the Jews, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. You see, when Paul was in the presence of Jewish ones, he celebrated the Sabbath. He ate the foods of the Jewish people. He ate kosher. He didn't necessarily offend them, exercising his freedom. He adapted himself to the people he was with. He was flexible. He could forsake his own freedoms because he didn't want to make the Jews stumble. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win as many as possible. Um, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. See, what he's saying is, if you're going to reach college students, you're going to have to get on their campus. You might need to have a backpack. You might need to sit in the cafeteria. You might need to go to some classes. You may need to hang out with college students because you're trying to win them. If you're a soccer mom, you might need a sweatshirt that says soccer mom and sit on the sidelines and, you know, cheer for the teams and talk to the people there on the sidelines because you're adapting to the culture. If you're trying to reach bikers, you might need some leather and a pair of boots and a Harley and because what you're out to do is to reach the bikers. You see, what Paul is saying is to a person who is under the law, I became like that person under the law. But to the person who without the law, I became like the person without the law. So as to win people over. His mission was to win people over. Finally, make sure all your actions are done with a clear conscience. Look at verse 22. Here's where we get the doubt part from. Romans 14, 22. 
It says this. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. (laughs) You don't have to sort of like tell everybody everywhere what you believe, right? Keep it between you and and God. Um, Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who doubts is condemned if he eats. If the man, hear it again. If the man who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. First of all, Paul speaks to the person who is weak. He says, whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. You have freedom. You don't have to boast about your freedom. You don't have to flaunt your freedom. You don't have to get drunk to prove that you can drink. You don't have to binge watch in order to show you can watch a movie on Netflix. Make sure you keep your boundaries intact. But blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You will be blessed if in exercising your liberty, you don't do something to make somebody stumble. And then Paul addresses the weak. But the man who doubts, and that's where we started, That's where the wrestling match begins, right? He's doubting. The man who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Listen to me. Your faith is your moral compass. You know if you have freedom to do something. If your conscience warns you, you have doubts about it, don't do it. You never want to do anything against your conscience. I know I shouldn't drink, but I know one drink won't hurt me. I know I shouldn't see this, but what's the harm in watching this? I know I shouldn't go there, but I do. Conscience is not an infallible guide, but it is wrong for you to violate conscience or to violate the conscience of any other person. So what's he saying? Out of this great division and diversity, Let's build unity. Let's never make someone stumble. Let's live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God, not focused on the externals, but the internals of righteousness, peace, and joy. Let's pursue peace with each other, edification, and let's do it with a clear conscience. Now, here's something we all can agree upon as believers. Jesus Christ went to a cross. Jesus Christ did something for us we did not deserve. Jesus has a love for righteousness and a hate for sin. And at the cross, he became sin. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus that we might have peace with God and that we might have peace with each other. The power of sin has been broken at the cross. The power of death has been broken through the resurrection. And now we have a Savior. He is the Savior of us all. We don't divide ourselves in the camps of the vaxxers and the unvaxxers or the maskers and the unmaskers. We are the people of God. Let's unify ourselves around the person of Jesus and the cross and the gospel, and let's give freedom to one another to pursue their conscience. Amen? Pray with me. Father, you are good and your principles are true. And you wrote this so many years ago, but they're still true to us that we really need to love and accept one another, to be all about your kingdom 
and to see people with your eyes and to realize you're deep at work in their hearts. And we don't want to undo the work that you're doing by making a brother to stumble. So give us a consciousness of one another, a sensitivity to each other. Help us, Lord, to enjoy our freedoms, but not at the expense of somebody else. Lord, show us how to live this out in our own families, being aware of one another. Show us what it means in social situations, Lord, to be aware of one another, be an encouragement to each other. Take us to the cross. Take us to the place where Jesus underwent unbelievable pain and suffering. To see his battered face, to see the blood flowing down, showing the depth of your love for us. Help us to love one another with that kind of love, a sacrificial, self-denying kind of love, a love that puts someone ahead of ourselves, a love that lays down ourselves for somebody else. God, this is our prayer, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. I heard about a church, and they were having a lot of division. The division centered around Christmas trees. Someone had read online that Christmas trees come out of the Celtic tradition. It's pagan, in the Yule log. And so when they put up the Christmas tree, there was a faction in the church that said, this is pagan, we can't do this. Now, of course, some said, yeah, it may be pagan, but it's okay with us. Like, it's just a Christmas tree. We're going to hang, you know, our bulbs on it and put our presents underneath it. And so they had division. The one group that put the Christmas tree up, the other group took the Christmas tree out. And the ones that took it out, the other group put it back up. Can you imagine this, Sharon? I, I can't. <laughs> Sharon loves Christmas and, you know, like Christmas trees to her are almost sacred. So they sued each other about the Christmas tree because they just couldn't figure out how to get along. I believe that God's given us the capability to get along with each other, to really have peace with each other, peace in our households, peace in our church, but that peace really does come out of freedom and not making everybody in the world agree with us, right? Mm -hmm. Father, you are God. You are above all things. You are sovereign. Nothing happens on this earth that you haven't allowed it to happen. But we see the great evil of COVID. The lives have been taken, the lives have suffered, the fear that has spawned the division. And we pray that your spirit at work in your people would allow us, Lord, to love people like you love them, to not force them to believe what we believe, to act like we act, to look like we look, to say what we say we would give them freedom to follow after you, and that you would spread your beautiful gospel even in this time. Help us, Lord, to adapt ourselves, to be flexible to the people we are with. Even as Paul said, to those under law, he became like one under law. To those free, he became like a person free. So as to win people. God, we want to see your gospel spread. We want to see many come into faith. So use us, Lord. Use us. May we be about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.